greener on the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. Bye, bye, butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. Always honored and humbled you can join me on a Saturday morning. I know it's early, but good morning. Welcome to the 6 o'clock hour, hour number one of Green and Growing right here on 95.5 WSB. A full show for you today. We'll be talking about the history of apples with Diane Flint, who's an author, and Josh Fooder, the Cherokee County Extension agent up where I live. You'll be hearing from a 17-year-old woodworker and all of the incredible things that he does with wood and timber and his knowledge of trees has just blown me away. Camp Southern Ground, a hidden gem, a wonderful place for families and veterans and even children over the summertime. I'll take you on a field trip down to the Fayetteville area, and we'll be hearing from the Georgia Forestry Commission coming up at 7.30 with an update on the Georgia Leaf Watch, where the best color is in Georgia this weekend. But I want to start off with calls. We've got some great ones. First of all, we'll say good morning to Sharon calling from coming. Hey, good morning. I have a question. I noticed my Japanese maple in the front yard was looking a little stressed. Maybe it was just the time of year. It's probably four or five years old. But I went underneath to get a really good look at it. And I realized the guy that's been cutting my grass has been blowing all of the grass clippings up underneath the tree. And it's probably three inches of depth of grass clippings all around the base of the tree. And I wondered if perhaps my tree's not getting a lot of water because the grass, the grass was still damp. And I wondered if the grass clippings are holding on to all the water and it's not getting down to the tree. What are your thoughts? Very well could be. Um, When we're talking about like mulch itself around trees and plants, we want mulch to be two or three inches, you know, thick to protect the roots and to allow for moisture to get through and all of that. But grass clippings, yeah, there's a whole different beast because they can get so matted, right? And so clumped together. So a thin layer of grass clippings, like if he were to kind of blow it out and level it out or thin it out a little bit, rake it. Uh, would be good because it provides nitrogen back to the soil, which all plants need. But if it's so deep and clumped, and also we don't want anything, whether it's mulch or grass clippings or anything, uh, right up against the base of the tree, like right up against the trunk, that's bad news because that can introduce mm-hmm. pests and diseases and things like that. So um, if he were doing it in a responsible way and doing it really shallow, I would say that's a great thing. Um, but in clumps and when it stays wet and stuff, it could be potentially robbing moisture from the roots. Yeah, it depends on the amount. Do you, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you observed that. And you just kind of politely wag your finger at him and say, hey, it's OK what you're doing. But then you need to rake it out and thin it out before you leave, you know, and yeah, maybe he'll be I, up for that. Yeah. Yeah. Each time when he cuts the grass, he just blows it under there. And I think it's just been collecting and collecting because I don't I don't think it goes any other place. He's found that that's a good place to put it because the. Uh, it's old enough to where the branches actually almost touch the ground, so you don't really see up underneath oh, it. Oh, right. Yeah, and so, it's struggling yeah. to get any sunlight through there to ever dry out those clumps of grass, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I bet that's it, too. Okay. Yeah, very good investigative work, <laughs> Shannon or Sharon. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Go ahead and just kind of speak up to him and be like, hey, you may want to stop doing that or at least let some of those decompose before he keeps at it. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for the call. And that reminds me too, I was having a conversation with with my lawn guy, Chuck, yesterday. We spent some time as he was working in the yard. I'm right out there beside him working and learning from him and asking him questions. Um, he was aerating my, my yard and overseeding for fescue. And I was kind of watching that whole process. But I had an area that I had put pine straw in um, 
earlier in the spring, maybe April, let's say, I laid down some pine straw and I laid it pretty thick, you know, because it's erosion control and a weed barrier and all that kind of thing. And I decided I wanted to turn that area that had pine straw into grass. So I said, hey, if you'll just go and aerate that spot up there, let's go ahead and put some grass seed there and that doesn't need to be a bed anymore. But the aerator was kind of getting bogged down with some of the crab grass and the pine straw that was all right there. So we took the time to really rake a lot of that out of the way. So that is really something to consider, too. If you have something that's impeding the soil or impeding the roots for something underneath, you definitely may want to, you know, start looking at that and and thinning it out or raking things out. So that was just something that came to my mind, too. I thought, huh, I wouldn't have really thought, yeah, the grass seed needs to get as close to the soil as possible. And all this dead crab grass and pine straw is just going to keep that from happening. Up next, we have Greg calling with a great question about a crepe myrtle. Hey, Greg. Hey, Ashley, how are you? Great. What you up to today? Working, I work every Saturday, and I've listened to this show for the last 29 years. Can I can I get your honest opinion, Greg? How am I doing? You're doing excellent. Oh, I will thanks. be honest with you that when Walter retired, I just, I was like, man. <laughs> Me too. Uh, <laughs> you know, who's going to replace him? But you have done a wonderful job. Thank Absolutely. you. Well, thanks for being along with us all these Saturdays. We appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Um, I've got some crit murals that are on a, they're on a, a slight bank. And there's three that are right up against my parking pad, and then there's two behind them. And I cut them down in February to about four feet, yeah. and there's probably about six stalks, and I don't know, they're probably four or five inches in di- diameter. And it just seems like every year that they come back, and they get bushier and bushier every year and just, like, overgrown. And I'm to the point where I just want to cut them down, go ahead and cut them now, and I don't know what it's going to do to them, but at the same time, I'm not too concerned, and I don't mean to sound mean, but <laughs> I'm not. They're just they're growing over the parking pad. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a mess, and, you know, you used to could stand on the parking pad and look out into the yard and into the woods, and, I mean, it's, it's, they're so grown up and bushy, uh, you can't even see the woods. And I would say they're probably about, at the highest point, 10, 11, 12 feet. And I just want to just chop them. Yeah. And what's going to happen if I do that? Okay. Now, I know this seems kind of counterintuitive, Greg, so stick with me here. Uh, The more we cut them and make extreme hard cuts, like that hard pruning that is recommended to do, yeah, late winter, early spring, like you said, February, Crepe myrtles don't even need to be cut, but I understand the reasons you're cutting them. So cutting them at that time is actually signaling to them to grow more. (laughs) So that's the part that seems counterintuitive. So the more you prune, it's going to keep getting that new growth. And as you're talking about the, the parts that are coming up from the ground, those suckers, those shoots, that is the plant stress mechanism of, okay, he just cut off, you know, more, well more than a third. Um, When we do proper pruning is, you know, crepe myrtles are a different breed because they're so tough they can come back from anything. But generally, that's why when we're pruning any kind of plant or even a tree, only removing about a third at a time, but no more. So crepe myrtles uh, endure such strong pruning. Oh, hi, cell phone. I need to turn the ringer off. Good morning, Mickey Gasway. She just texted me. 
Um, so when we cut off much more than a third, it is, you know, hormonally telling that plant signaling, grow, 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 put on new growth. So that's the cause for the abundance of suckers coming up from the ground. Again, it's kind of the roots not knowing where to put that energy because you've removed so, so much of the plant. So I would hold off on major pruning, certainly none of that crepe murder where you're just literally cutting off and you just have trunks and nothing else, like knuckles that, that uh, then form healing over those wounds. Um, staying after the suckers too, I mean, making sure in no time at all, just in a matter of months, those suckers coming up from the ground will actually become legitimate trunks that, like you're saying, two, three inches in diameter. Um, so really keeping those mowed over or cut down or whatever. But the less pruning you do at this point, the better. Um, thankfully, with it being near the parking pad, the roots aren't such of like a oak or something that it's really going to disrupt or, you know, mess up the concrete or break up the concrete in any way. But, I mean, how's how's that for counterintuitive, for sure, right? It, it makes all the sense in the world. And, um, you know, years ago, I, I, I did work in landscaping back, you know, when I was in college. And uh, I, I, you know how people, they'll cut and they'll develop those knuckles? Uh-huh. I, I was always told that was the wrong way to prune right, myrtle. So I always cut below, cut the knuckles out or off. And um, and so they're really just just stalks with nothing on them in February, and yeah. I, I, it makes sense what you're saying. Um, and I think you're right. I don't think I could do anything, even if I did something now that would hurt them. They're so tough. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they're gonna they're so resilient. They're gonna come back. You know, and, and maybe thinning out the trunks <laughs> since they're multi-trunked. You know, I mean, if you just go to the base of the plant with a saw and can really saw out a couple of the trunks, I mean, that's thinning the plant out. That may be more beneficial pruning at this point than actually taking it, you know, vertically. So okay. that could be a consideration. And again, staying after the suckers. That way you're not going to have more and more trees and more and more trunks growing. If I did now what I do in February, mm-hmm. what do you think would happen? So what I would do when, like I said, crepe myrtles don't need to be pruned, y'all. They really don't just because your neighbors and all the everything you see in the wintertime, the landscape crews just come along and do crepe murder. As I said, like cutting off the trunk to leave no stems, no branches, no growth, just a flat cut on all those trunks. That's when the knuckles form because that uh, tree is trying to kind of heal over. But if you do prune in late winter, early spring, more of a thinning prune for crepe myrtles. And you want to go along and look at that crepe myrtle and start by just removing the long, skinny branches that are about the size of a pencil. You want to thin it out and remove those. Remove any branches that are kind of overhanging a driveway or somewhere where an area where you walk or something like that, but not taking every single branch and every single stem back to the trunk and then cutting the trunk itself. Um, So I know that seems like it's definitely a lot more time consuming to do selective pruning like that, but that's thinning it out. And that's going to be more of a proper pruning technique to where it's not just completely stressed because you're removing so much at a time that it's stress response is to send up suckers and all this kind of unwieldy growth. So try that, Greg, um, by thinning it out. Like I said, just removing the whips, the branches that are about a pencil size and diameter. Do that, kind of stand back, kind of evaluate what you've got. And then if it really is just becoming crazy, actually removing maybe one trunk. Um, And then the following season, if it's still a lot, removing another trunk. If you have that option, it's got four or five trunks going at it. Thank you for the call. Good discussion. Very great question now, understanding kind of the the physiology and the biology behind why it's getting so crazy. The more we prune, the more it's going to grow. It's nuts. And I have with me now on the line, Kevin Caldwell, who is owner of Caldwell Tree Care there in Roswell, covering Metro Atlanta. Hey, Kevin, good morning. 
Hey, good morning, Ashley. So I would love to hear your thoughts on, on crepe myrtle pruning and what to do, what not to do. Most landscapers and people in Atlanta think that pruning crepe myrtles in you know, February, January, February, March is the right thing to mm-hmm. do. But in my experience, I learned from the growers at Bold Springs Nurseries years ago that actually if you're trying to structurally prune a correct crepe myrtle trees, it's better to prune them in September. The reason for that is that you're not going to create a, a hormonal response, which is done with the auxins, the hormones in the tree. And so because of that, you're not going to stimulate a lot of new growth, right? which means you're not going to have a lot of balloons. As you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, crepe myrtles really, they're not supposed to be pruned the way that we prune them in a lot of cases. We, mm-hmm. they're, they're being over pruned. And so, you know, the research that I conducted after that with some of the other old school pruners was, yeah, we, we prune crepe myrtles quite a bit in September. So not to, to not to rush that, you, not to rush you, Kevin, but I got about 20 seconds here. So how much do you remove of the, of the plant this time of year? Well, you, you're still going to follow the same rules. You never want to remove more than a third, but okay. you could be more substantial and corrective pruning now. I like it. See, and it's slowing down because we're going into a dormant season for things. So you're right. It's not going to throw off as much new growth. Kevin, good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. Gotta run. We'll be back. More calls next. The update on the weekend's weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. Green, green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. These are fun ones, and I love this time of year. Number one, don't worry about some of those summer weeds in your lawn. You don't have to spray them. They're going to be dying off soon. Bagging leaves? Nope. Save yourself the time and rake them into beds and around trees. Hey, they're free mulch. Number two, fragrant fall flowers to consider. Sasanqua camellia, tea olive, trumpet honeysuckle, and sweet autumn clematis. Now is a great time to plant all of those. And number three, if you're growing pumpkins and you started on them back in the summertime, keep them mulched to keep the weeds out and scout for squash bugs and vine borers. It's probably best, though, to avoid insecticides if you can because the remaining flowers on the vines need the pollinators to visit. Back out to the phones and talk to Gina from Conyers. Hi, Ashley. I will be moving from one side of the city to the other. And I have some hostas and also a very special rose bush. And at this time of year, can I even dig them up and move them and will they survive? Absolutely. The Really, the time of year we don't want to do a lot of moving or transplanting is summer just because of so much heat stress and oftentimes, you know, drought stress that the roots are going to have trouble acclimating to a new place. But fall, we always say, is a great time to install new trees and shrubs because the cooler weather and cooler soil temperatures allow for root growth. And so transplanting would follow the same rules. Absolutely. You already have that new hole dug first. That way they're not out of the ground for too long. And then you go to work digging up the stuff that you're going to move and then get them back in the ground as soon as you can and keep the the plant watered real well to acclimate and break up that soil really good, you know, in the new planting hole, Um, especially for the rose bushes, Gina, I'm sure you've planted them. So dig the hole, of course, wider than deep so that as many of the roots as you've been able to save can lay out along the the soil and grow wider than, than deep. But as long as you've got a wide enough hole and water it in real good, backfill it with the soil that came from that hole. Hostas, dig them up and move them and even divide them if they've gotten too big. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, good to hear from you. I'm so glad you called me now. <laughs> They're not like June. Like, I'm moving. I want to move all my stuff. We'll be like, yeah, you might want to tell the new owners of the house that you'll be coming back in the fall. But this is going to be great. Just keep everything watered. And when we transplant stuff like that, watering at the base of the plant. You know, overhead watering isn't really doing a whole lot of good for, for most plants. So watering at the base and letting that soil get saturated and making sure it's packed in uh, nice and tight, kind of stomping it lightly with your foot when you put something in a new spot. That way you're not going to get any soil washing away or any exposed roots. All right, coming up, a conversation about the history of apples and maybe some lost varieties. I have author Diane Flint coming on. Wild, tamed, lost, revived. The surprising story of apples in the South coming up on Green and Growing. Oh yeah, the grass is green. I'm gonna live where the green grass grows. The grass is always green around the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. Good morning, everybody. Another episode of Green and Growing right here in Atlanta, North Georgia. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. Happy to be with you on a beautiful Saturday morning. And I bring you so many cool interviews, people and guests that you wouldn't hear from otherwise that I get so excited about. This one in particular, it's been months in the making, and I'm so fortunate to have finally caught up with Diane Flint. And my thanks goes to Josh Fooder, the Extension agent in Cherokee County, where I live, for introducing me to Diane. And last month, she wrote a book. It came out, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. And this, this is going to be an interesting conversation for all of you, us Southerners who love our fall fruits. Good morning, Diane. Good morning, Ashley. It's great to be with you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. It was a it was a long journey and a deep dive into the region, my region. I was born in Georgia, born in Atlanta, and I grew up in West Point, Georgia. And a deep dive into a fruit that many people don't associate with the South. Honored that Josh has joined us, Josh Fooder, because you all have had a history in, in the making of this book, and Josh has such a passion for apples. Hey there, buddy. Hey, Ashley. So in the last three years or so, Josh, that I've been doing this show, you know, you have taken so much time with me for the listeners, which I appreciate. Before we get into Diane's story, talk to people about your passion for apples and kind of the tasks that you have taken on meeting growers and really interesting characters all throughout Georgia. You know, I was a Hort major in school, but uh, never thought too much about apples until, you know, I ended up getting the job with Extension here in Cherokee County. And the home that I bought came with uh, about 40 or so year old apple trees that uh, were heirlooms and uh, really opened my eyes to what apples could be or should be, used to be. And then just happened to be here in Cherokee County where Lawson's Nursery was in operation for close to 50 years. Uh, so had that for real firsthand experience with meeting one of the great Apple historians and retired nurserymen and Jim Lawson. Both of you have met really, really fascinating people. But as part of the book, Diane, Wild Tamed, Lost, Revived, um, the shift in Southern farming led to the disappearance of a lot of uniquely Southern apples. And I'm sure that's a long story of kind of how those have gotten lost over a couple of hundred years, but where do you suppose we begin in the efforts that are being made now to bring back some of those really, really neat vintage varieties? Well, we have some great efforts underway, and the orchard in North Georgia that, that Josh has worked on for several years now is, is one of the best. I see the same thing beginning in, uh, in places like Lexington, Kentucky, and in Tennessee. There's a preservation orchard 
um, on a state historic farm in North Carolina, in Pinnacle, North Carolina. And then there are nurseries across the South that are selling these old varieties. So if your listeners are interested, there are places they can go to find the varieties. Even better, they can take a grafting workshop from Josh and make their own apples using grafting wood from his orchard. Josh, I think that's really key, what Diane just said. And Diane, I know you want to talk about the biology of apples, which is fascinating, and we will. But Josh, you can't just take a seed from an apple, plant it in the ground, and expect that exact same apple to grow on that tree. That's correct. Uh, You you actually can't even take all 12 or uh, 15 of the (laughs) seeds in one fruit and get 12 or 15 of the same apple. Each one of them will be unique in character. And you've had really, as Diane mentioned, really interesting grafting workshops. Tell people a little bit about what that is and how that works, why that's important in establishing the variety that you intend to. So the only way to guarantee that you're going to have, say, a Yates apple, which is a Georgia apple, is to graft it or clone it. So we're taking uh, existing wood from a known uh, Yates tree, grafting it onto a rootstock, which that rootstock has characteristics that make for you know, a dwarfing tree or a medium-sized tree, something like that. And so, you know, if you take that wood from an existing tree, put it onto a rootstock that you are going to then replicate those characteristics within that variety. In talking about the biology of apples, I'm thinking, you know, in a couple of weeks, Halloween parties already happening, maybe bobbing for apples. And I learned from listening to an interview that you've done, they're filled with air. Um, so that I, I didn't even think about that when they're floating on the water. So talk to us about the biology of your favorite fruit. When Southerners over hundreds of years recognized wild apples, seedling apples that they liked, maybe they tasted good. Maybe that apple tasted good or, or lasted in storage for months and months and months or, or came in June when there was a real hunger for, for fruit. Uh, when Southerners noticed these apples, they replicated them through grafting. And in that, they really put their desires on that fruit. One of the ways that apples stimulate human desire is that they are packed full of flavor. They're an ideal vehicle for conveying flavor. You mentioned apples are 25% air. So it's almost like there's a hydraulic pump in there that pushes the juice and the aromas into our mouth the, the aromas go into our scent receptors in the top of our mouth and in our nose. So in just one bite, we get this complex flood of sugars and esters and acid and, ta- and sometimes tannin. Who doesn't like to bite into a crisp apple in the fall? Oh, absolutely. Fully associated with this time of year. And something else that you've said, Diane, of cider making, which I would be remiss if I did not mention Foggy Ridge and the story with the cidery that you began in the late 90s. But you once said of cider making, it's getting the apple in the bottle with as little manipulation as possible. So that really speaks to trying to capture all of that flavor and not really alter it a whole lot, right? It does. And that was our mission at Foggy Ridge Cider. We were the first cidery south of Massachusetts in the, in the 20th century. Sometimes I like to say the first legal cidery because, <laughs> of course, anytime when you, you leave apple juice out in, in, in September in the south in a little bit of warm weather, you're going to get some fermentation. One of the things that cider makers look for, actually, that your listeners may not be aware of is an apple that may not taste as good as an eating apple. 
And that's because fermented beverages achieve balance and depth with something called tannin. And tannin is the bitterness like in a, in a tea bag. And that tannin in specifically cider apples, that's what gives a lot of balance and depth and richness to cider. Diane Flint, author of a new book, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. And I want both of you, in the research you've done, the stories you've been told, and things that others have shared with you, I want both of you, and I'll start with you, Diane, what's the most interesting fact, or maybe there's more than one, that you learned about apples hundreds of years ago? For me, you know, as a Georgia native, farming, although it wasn't my first career, it's, it's an old calling for me, and I wasn't aware that in the 17 and 1800s, apples grew all over the South. Some of the most storied apples came from the coastal South, from the coast of Virginia and South Carolina, from places like Addisto, South Carolina. And we just don't think about those regions as important apple growing areas and even commercial apple growing areas. Tidewater, Virginia, which is coastal Virginia in sandy soil, exported apples to the north, early season apples, you know, put those on ships and sent them up to Boston and New York. And that was such a surprise for me. Probably the most storied fruit tree nurseries in the South were outside of Columbia, South Carolina, and Georgia's own fruit land, hmm. which was outside of Augusta. Right. And Josh, with you, um, are there stories that go along with some of the varieties that you have as close as in your backyard or just other people you've talked to? Give me an interesting piece of history that just blew your mind about apples. For me, Ashley, the thing that endears me most to my work with apples is I've just been able to meet so many people. They have an apple variety. Most of them don't know the variety anymore. And to me, it's less important that the variety, is it the lost one, is it a known one? That tree uh, is a member of their family. I've met people well into their 70s and 80s that that tree is still on family property that they were climbing as a, as a child. To me, that's what's most important about, you know, the work I do, teaching them the graphs, sometimes, you know, saving a tree that's, you know, reaching the end of its life is, you know, hopefully we're able to keep these family members around for that next generation of what will hopefully then be apple lovers themselves. So, you know, if there are just apple trees and orchards without being labeled or properly identified, how do you go about finding what variety is what if those trees aren't, you know, already priorly labeled or maybe the farm got lost out of the family to to another one's hands? How do you even know? One of the most important ways is what Josh has referred to is the family records and family history. You know, there's still some older family members who might remember when that tree was grafted and planted. Uh, They might remember what the family called the tree. One of the things I learned early on in my research on apples is that southern apples carry many names. So the name the family might have for the apple might not be the most commonly used name for that variety, but at least that points you in a direction. And there's some very prescribed ways of looking at apples and evaluating them. But now Washington State University is doing DNA testing and creating a library genetic material Well, Josh, in a lot of the research that you've done, and even referencing Diane's book, which you've had your hands on for a while, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South, um, you are aware of some of the mapping and the just really good spot-on record-keeping that kind of reveals some of the history of apples here as far back as, what, the early 1800s? 
And this is thanks to Diane's years of research that she shares with the world in her book here. Uh, but was very eye-opening to me was, Diane, you included a, a map here that I guess was done by government surveyors uh, at the time of the Cherokee removal. Um, but it shows a distribution of apple trees where each dot is uh, 30 trees. I am right in the center of where it appears to be the most dots. Wow. Um, I've sent this map here to our county's GIS people to see if we can transpose an outline of Cherokee County's actual existing uh, county boundaries. But I think we've got to be right in this hot spot of this map where it looks like there's the most amount of apple trees. In your book uh, and in other records, we learn about uh, Jarvis Van Buren, early nurseryman who came in and is attributed of going out and hunting and finding a lot of these abandoned uh, Cherokee orchards, then bringing them into the trade, sometimes with different names. But it looks like he he was in the wrong area. He was in the northeast part of the state. He should have been down here. How many have we lost here down in in our portion of of the state? Georgia originated many, many southern apples. And part of that was due to Fruitlands and the work that Prosper Berkman's did at that very large and and famous nursery outside of Augusta. But a big part of, of Georgia's apple heritage resides with the Cherokee. And after the Cherokee people were forcibly removed from their land after 1836 and the Indian Removal Act, their orchards remained. And the reason we know about them is that federal evaluators went into Cherokee land and recorded all the orchards. And over half the Georgia Cherokee households had mature orchards. 20 or 30 feet tall trees. Major Ridge was one of the largest Cherokee landowners. He had 1,000 peach trees and almost 500 apple trees. And the Cherokee people lost all that at Indian removal. But a Georgia nurseryman, Jarvis Van Buren, uh, went into Cherokee territory over several years, gathered apples and gathered grafting wood, and introduced those apples to the nursery trade. And what are some of the varieties, as we're wrapping things up, Diane, that you want people to be aware of or maybe be on the lookout for or even share with all of you if they know that their family has them? There's so many names out there. I think just exploring and tasting apples at your farmer's market, you know, visiting small orchards that are still growing some of these old varieties. And this is not to say that there's some delicious new varieties out there as well that um, some of the modern orchards grow. But some of these old varieties are just so special, and the flavors the flavors really speak to you. One more thing about southern apples. We had apples 12 months a year, and we have apples that ripen in June, mm-hmm. and we have apples that you can pick in November and keep in a root cellar or piled under a bunch of straw in the barn, and they're still good in April and May. So we once had apples 12 months a year. Agritourism is so big, and the apple farms are just such a popular family thing to do uh, this time of year. Folks don't even think about them year-round. But uh, as a parting thought from each of you, your favorite way to enjoy apples. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, Man, that's really hard to say. Um, Obviously, fresh in hand, hard to beat. But this weekend, I made uh, about 14 quarts of applesauce. And I think that's the great thing about apples is there's so many ways to enjoy them. And Diane, it's like asking you to pick a favorite child, but what say you? (laughs) Well, I'm very old school. I like fried apples for breakfast, Hmm. preferably fried in bacon fat. (laughs) 
<laughs> a Southern girl. <laughs> well, some of the apple farms that I mentioned, apple orchards here in Georgia, if you want to find out any more about those, you can go to georgia-agritourism.org. And more about Diane's book on Amazon, you'll look for Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. My thanks to both of you. I knew you would tag team this interview so well. Josh Fooder with Cherokee County Extension and Diane Flint, author of this latest, greatest book. Both of you, thank you so much for your time and your passion and your research. It's been great to be with you, Ashley. Coming up next, invasive plants and native plants. Everything you need to know on WSB.